Father, we do pray and ask for the teaching ministry of your spirit. We depend upon you. Lord, you anoint me to speak the truth simply, clearly. Would you plant your word in our lives and make us more like Jesus because we are here today. In his name we pray. Amen. So there was this guy, actually the very first guy, Adam, and of course his wife Eve. Well, after God brought Eve to Adam, Adam asked God, why did you make her so beautiful and just enjoyable to look at? And he said, so you'd be attracted to her. And Adam asked, and God, why did you make her so tender and soft and nice to touch? God said, so you'd be attracted to her. And Adam said, but why did you make her so gullible? So she'd be attracted to you. Well, we've begun this series on God's grand story, which, of course, starts with creation and the creation of Adam and Eve. And last week we saw where the whole story is headed. I mean, God has an appointed end to the story, to history. History is going somewhere. And God appointed that goal before the foundation of the world. And his overarching providence will guide all the events of history to make sure it gets to that goal. Now, what is that goal? We saw that God's intended end goal of history is written down in Numbers 14, verse 21. Numbers 14, 21 simply reads, God says, Indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So this is where God is taking history. This is the end goal. And God is committed to arranging and disposing of all the events of history and the events of our lives to reach this end goal. Even events like what's going on in Russia, in Ukraine, what's going on in China, Israel, United States of America, God is guiding history to an appointed end goal. And one day all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. It will happen. God will make sure that happens. He will accomplish his end goal. In fact, we also look at this passage, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So at the beginning of history, God already saw the end of history. And he saw what he aimed to perform, and he knew what had to happen in order to achieve that end goal. He said, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I will do it. It will happen. It's a sure thing. That means this. That means if things in history are going the wrong direction, if things in history are going in a direction where God cannot get us to his end goal, then we should expect that God will intervene, disrupt that direction, and get history going back in the right direction so that he can reach his end goal of one day the whole earth being filled with the glory of the Lord. And that's what we're seeing happen in the book of Genesis, the first book in our Bible. We see what happens when we get to Genesis chapter 6. 
In fact, mankind has gotten so evil and is headed in such a wrong direction that God has to intervene. In fact, he intervenes with judgment and destroys the entire human race, all except for Noah and his family. Why did he do that? Because now he's going to start over, a new beginning. Noah and his family now headed in a direction where he can reach his end goal of all of the earth being filled with the glory of the Lord. Now we see it happen again, and we're going to look at this today in Genesis chapter 11. Something very similar happens. That is, mankind is not filling the earth to the glory of God. Rather, what they're doing is they are clustering in the plain of Shinar, Shinar and building a tower that we now know, of course, today we call the Tower of Babel because that's what God named it. And not only were they not spreading out and filling the earth like God said to, but they are coming together, staying together to build this tower in this city for their own glory, not for the glory of God. They were not concerned about the glory of God filling the earth. They were after their own glory. So what does God do? God will intervene in judgment. And by the way, this is, an, this is a true application for us. If, we are, if our lives are going a direction that God cannot accomplish his goal for our life, then don't be surprised when he intervenes in your life and gets you going a different direction. And don't expect that intervention to always be painless. Because when he comes, he comes with his goal of getting us going a direction where we can accomplish what he really has intended for us to accomplish. So that's what he does in Genesis chapter 11 with the whole human race once again. Now, Genesis chapter 11 describes the origin of all of the languages of the earth. Why do we have so many languages? It also will describe to us all of the, why we have all these different ethnicities on the earth. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 11. But I need to make sure I explain something because it could be a little confusing. Because actually, in Genesis chapter 11, it says they all had one language before God came and confused their languages. But in Genesis chapter 10, the previous chapter, it actually talks about the fact that they had already been divided into different people groups and spoke different languages. For example, Genesis 10 verse 5 says this, From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations, into their ethnos, ethnicities. So that was actually Genesis 10, but Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. The point is simply this. These two stories are not in chronological order. And they're not in chronological order, I believe, on purpose. The author describes the spread of the languages in chapter 10. And in chapter 11, he describes the origin of that diversity. See, after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then we get to chapter 10, and it looks like they're obeying that command. But chapter 11, you get to verse 1, verse 1, 
it kind of drops a bomb on us and lets us know that this wasn't obedience. They weren't spreading and obeying God. That's not why they have all these different languages throughout the earth and all these different ethnicities. They weren't obeying God. They were disobeying God. They were clustering. And God came down and shattered their disobedience, making their clustering impossible by confusing their languages and then breaking humanity off into all these different ethnicities. Let's look at what happens. Let's read Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick, bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. I mean, God's will was for them to spread across the earth, not cluster, and glorify his name, not their own. There are two things that motivated these people to cluster together and build a city and a tower. They wanted praise for themselves, and they wanted security. But God wanted them to find their fulfillment, not in seeking self-praise, but that he wanted them to find their, their joy and enjoyment in praising him and giving him glory, and he wanted them to find their security in him. God knows what is best for them, the God who loves them and loves us infinitely. Every time we obey him, Every command is for our own good and for our own well-being. And that was for their own good. It was to spread across the earth and to glorify God. But they did the exact opposite. The exact opposite of what God commanded them to do is what they did. Instead of spreading out throughout the whole earth, they clustered. Instead of seeking to glorify God, they were seeking to glorify themselves. So what is God going to do? It is going a direction that will not get to that end goal of filling the earth with the glory of the Lord. So God has to intervene in judgment, and he does. Genesis 11, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. I want you to notice, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, the author is actually mocking the author who we know to be Moses of the first five books, the Pentateuch, the author is actually mocking the tower by saying that God had to come down to see it. This tower that is so far up into heaven that God can't see, God has to come so far down to even find it. Of course, God can see everything everywhere. This is irony. This is something the author is doing to show how ludicrous the nature of man's God belittling pride is in his little achievements. So he's speaking with irony and describing God peering down and searching for this great tower. Where is it? Whose top reaches the heavens. So now what is God going to do in response to the sin of mankind refusing to fill the earth with God's glory? 
securing a city for themselves and trying to exalt themselves in the place of God. What is God going to do? Well, let's see what he does. Verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing to which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called, was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Notice again, God says in verse 6, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. That signals that God didn't just divide their languages, he divided their ethnicities. They're no longer one people, they're now many people groups, many different ethnos. So we see here we have now the origin of all the different languages of the earth and all the different ethnicities. It goes back to Genesis chapter 11. So in response to man's disobedience and arrogance, God makes it harder for them to communicate and to unite in any future God-belittling plans. So the languages of the world, we discover now from Genesis 11, all these different languages and ethnicities are actually a judgment of God on sin. And God's actually going to turn now this judgment into an even greater way to glorify his son. Now, how will God, think about this, how will God use the diversity of language and ethnicity to actually glorify his son. See, I think we think the opposite. I think we often think of all these different languages and cultures and peoples and political states actually are a hindrance to glorifying the son of God, a hindrance to world evangelization. But apparently God is seeing this differently. See, God is more concerned about the dangers of human uniformity than he is about human diversity. See, God apparently sees that humans are far too evil to be allowed to unite in one language and one government. Apparently, the gospel of the glory of Christ will actually, is going to spread better and flourish better because of 6,500 languages, not just in spite of it. I want us to think about this for a moment. The authority and the power of Jesus is going to be magnified in a greater way because he's going to lay claim to every language group and every people group on the earth. John Piper rightly points out, talking about Christianity, that this is no tribal religion. It breaks into every language, into every people. If there, were no, if there were no diversity of languages, if the sin of Babel had not happened with his judgment, the global glory of, G, of Christ would not shine as beautifully as it does in the prism of thousands of languages. See, the praise that Jesus is going to receive one day from every language, every tongue, every tribe is going to actually be more beautiful because of its diversity than if it were just one people in one language. So again, we see God taking his judgments 
and even then turning things in a way that are going to bring greater glory for Christ. In fact, let's look at a couple passages in Revelation chapter 5 about that day that's coming. Revelation 5, starting verse 9, says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, talking to Jesus about Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood because of the cross of Christ. Purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, ethnos, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then Revelation 7, let's look at this passage, verse 9 and 10 as well. Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, it was the sin of Babel that gave rise ultimately to the multiplying of languages that's going to end in the most glorious praise for Christ from every language on the earth. An amazing story, an amazing future that we're headed for. Now, what lessons can we take from this story? Because I think there are several, but there's one I want to hone in on. See, we're reminded, first of all, in this story that this, this world is God's world. It's not ours. It's his. All glory belongs to him, and none of it belongs to us. And that truth is supposed to define how we live our lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul summarized it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is supposed to determine how we live. Our lives are to be lived for the glory of God, not for our own glory, not to make a name for ourselves like they were doing at Babel. We are to live for the glory of God. Everything we do is to be for his glory not for our own. Now, Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, sin cuts us off from God. We understand that. We need a Savior in Jesus. We understand that. But I want you to understand something else, that the sin that cuts us off from God makes us, in our, in our sin, we want to accumulate glory for ourselves and not for him. In the story of the Tower of Babel, the people are essentially saying, look, we'll use our intelligence and our technology and our strength, and we will build a tower. And we will not ascribe to God the glory due his name. In fact, we want to make a name for ourselves. This is simply the human condition. The human condition in our depravity, in our sin nature, is that we are in the name-making business. We want to accumulate glory for ourselves. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Every one of us fills that tug. People in every sphere, every sphere of influence do it. Churches do it. Pastors do it. Trying to make a name for themselves. 
And, by, and, and we're not here for that. We're here to make, to, to make his name famous, to bring glory to Christ. That's why we live, exist. We were made for Christ. We were made by Christ for Christ. And every time we try to make a name for ourselves, every time we try to bring glory to ourselves, first of all, it never works. And second of all, it, it ends up looking silly. Let me give you an example. There's a story of this newly minted military officer that's assigned his first command at a military base. He's feeling pretty full of himself because he has the command of the base. And he goes to his office, and the office is brand new. Everything's being put together. And he sits down in his chair, and there's a knock on the door. There's a, there's a private at the door, and before he, the door is open, he swings around and picks up the telephone as if he's having an important conversation. The door opens, and the private's standing there, and he says, yes, 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 General Petraeus, I'll take care of that right away. Then he looks over at the private and says, now, what do you want, private? The private's somewhat confused, and he said, uh, I just came to hook up your phone. It always looks silly when we try to make a name for ourselves. Now, part of what it means, if we're going to give God glory, is that we have to die to all, all, we die to all self-glorification projects. Some of you might be involved in one right now. We've all been involved in it one time or another. We die to that. We die to self-glorification projects, all of them. See, the human nature is that we are hungry for glory. And that's why we tend to work longer than harder than we should. That's why we try to look better and sound smarter than we really are. Because we want a name for ourselves. This is really one of the most tragic and yet true statements of the human condition, I think, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our human nature is we are glory mongers. The truth is we cannot get glory unless God gives it to us. He's the only one who has it, true glory. What we See, we are not made on this earth to be glory manufacturers. We are here to be glory reflectors. What do I mean by that? Well, we understand that the moon doesn't make its own light. It's a reflection of the sun. We are designed ourselves to be glory reflectors, not glory manufacturers. Habakkuk prophesied this would happen one day. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water, waters cover the sea. There will be experiential glory filling the entire earth. That's where the world is headed. And we, we have a sense that we, there's a sense in us that we want to touch glory. We want to connect with it. We want to be part of it. Even though deep down inside, we know that we're really not worthy of it. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this subject, and I want to read something he, he said that I think is very profound. He said, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which we can hardly put into words. We want to be united with beauty. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it on ourselves. We want to bathe in it, to become part of it. The problem is, at the present time, we're on the wrong side of the door. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, there's a day coming when we'll be on the other side of the door after the Lord Jesus comes, where he, Jesus says of those who belong to him, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So all those who know Christ, all you who know Christ, one day you will glow. One day you're going to shine. That glory will be bestowed upon us by God. He's the only one who has it to give. In the meantime, all our attempts at getting glory for ourselves right now are pointless. And we're going to come up empty. So how should we live? We live for his glory. That's how we live. We live for the glory of God. How do we do that? We live by pointing humbly, by pointing, by diverting all glory to him and taking none of it on ourselves. We do not make a name for ourselves. We want his name to be the famous one. In 1996, we had 101 Christian leaders in Arlington. We met together, sought the Lord for a whole day, and we signed a covenant that day that we would stop, every one of us would not make a name for ourselves, but we would make Jesus famous in our city. But that is something all of us are supposed to do. We're to live for his glory. Now, has anyone ever done that? As a good example. Has anyone ever just lived for the glory of Christ? Well, the best example we have in the Bible, I think, is John the Baptist. Now, why do I say that? Well, that's why. Here's why. Matthew 11, 11. Here's what Jesus says of John the Baptist. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, why was he so great? What made him great? Well, let's read the passage in John chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, and then I'll start again in verse 19. As, I, as I'm reading this passage, see if you can see why Jesus said he was the greatest. John 1, starting in verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. It's John the Baptist. He came for a witness to testify about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. They said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? This is a perfect opportunity if he wants to make a name for himself. Here it is. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered and said, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan 
when John was baptized. And so John the Baptist has asked a series of questions. Can you imagine how frustrating it was to those who wanted answers? Could you imagine someone in the media interviewing John the Baptist today? And just trying to find out who he is. He confessed and said, I'm not, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. Then who are you? You know, earlier in the passage, it tells us plainly, he came, he was not the light, he came to bear witness of the light. That's all of us, all of us, that's all we are. We're simply witnesses to the light. We're here to point to Christ. They said, who are you, John? We need an answer. So here's his answer. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet. I mean, he doesn't even give them his name. I just think this is amazing. I mean, you talk about someone who's not trying to make a name for himself. He won't even give them his name. I'm just a voice. The implication being, big deal, it doesn't matter who I am because this isn't about me. This is all about him. So then they ask the question, then why are you baptizing? And what they should have, the question they should have asked, if you're preparing the way of the Lord, where is he? So we can go find him and worship him. That should have been their next question. But their next question was basically, give us your credentials. Why are you baptizing? What qualifies you for this? Now, he doesn't say what he could have said here. John could have said this. And and telling the whole truth, he could have said, don't you know I'm a Levite? I was born the son of a priest. I've been in the wilderness for 30 years preparing for this. I'm anointed of God. I'm a prophet of God. Could have said all that and been telling the truth. But he didn't say any of that. He basically says, takes total focus off himself and says, I'm, I'm baptizing with water. I mean, the implication there is big deal. It's, it's a preparatory act. And I'm not even worthy to get on my hands and knees and unlatch his sandals. So he knew Christ was the light. He didn't try to get in the limelight with Christ. He just pointed to Christ. It's all about him. And that's why Jesus says, and he's the greatest in the kingdom. It's all we are. We're just voices in the wilderness crying out, pointing to Christ. That's what we're here for. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here to become famous. We're here to make Jesus famous. But here's the beauty of this. The more you live for his glory now, the more he bestows glory on you on the other side of the door. Let's stand for prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We're going to sing a closing song. We used to sing it a lot years ago called Not to Us. Not to us be the glory, but to him. But during this song, we're going to have kind of just a ministry time in your seats. Everyone just stay where you are. And and this is a good time during the song just to surrender to any self-glorification projects that you got going on right now. Just during this song, just surrender that self-glorification project and recommit to surrendering and wanting just to, to live for his glory and to give him all the glory in everything we do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Father, we pray that even in this song, that we would just do business with you, Lord. You know what's on our hearts. Lord, you, and you know ones that 
you're speaking to right now. We just pray for your grace that we could just be honest with you right now and just confess, Lord, pursuing our own glory for our own name, trying to make a name for ourselves, and just surrender that and just recommit to giving you all the glory. Father, we ask that this week we just find ourselves as conscious of this truth and that we be living deliberately for your glory and not our own. And Lord, we do ask that you would magnify the name of Jesus throughout the earth. 
that you speed up the fulfillment of every people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every ethnos coming to know Jesus. And Lord, we pray you'd use us this week in some, some small way to make progress on your end goal of the whole earth being filled with the glory of the Lord. 